Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. And here we are. Back again with our second installment in the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. Freddy's Revenge. In 1985. Yeah, so they put this out super quick after the first one. Literally a year later. Yeah, so I guess they made those plans super quick. Because didn't you say that originally there wasn't going to be a follow-up film? Yeah, we can jump right into context. Because essentially, as we know, the first one was written by Wes Craven. But when it came time for the sequel, he was disinterested in continuing the franchise. So what New Line Cinema did, obviously, they saw Freddy as an opportunity to financially revive the company because they were kind of on their last legs as a company before that phenomena of Freddy really took hold with Nightmare on Elm Street. So they brought on writer David Chaskin and director Jack Holder to helm the next installment. Controversially, Heather Langenkamp was not asked to return for Nightmare on Elm Street She wasn't even asked? Nope. She was not contacted for it. And I think the reasoning for that was, as you mentioned, the script was produced very quickly after the success of the original, and New Line's intention was to make the Elm Street house and its inhabitants the central character of the story. So there really wasn't a need for Nancy to return, especially because the way the first one ended, you know, they're driving away in that car. Like, did they actually die? Did they actually live? You know, it was kind of up for interpretation. So they didn't really see Nancy as this central character, which they'll return to in the third one. They mention her in the second, but they were really just focusing on like the Elm Street house. There was also an attempt to replace Robert England as Freddy Krueger. Seriously? There was. Essentially, there were some salary disputes where New Line couldn't really afford Robert England. But after some unsuccessful early shoots with different stuntmen in masks playing the antagonists, they pretty much realized that Robert England like was <laughs> Freddy Krueger, and they brought him back to reprise his role, which I don't even know what they would have done if they took anybody else and tried to make him Freddy, except in 2010 when they did. But, oh, we could talk about that later. <laughs> Which is interesting, though, because, like, Michael Myers and Jason Voorhees, like, they've all been played by, like, different people from movie to movie. There are some continuity, but there isn't, like, a central person who is the shape or Michael Myers. Or there isn't, like, a singular person who is Jason Voorhees because, I mean, they have actual masks, so it's a little easier. But, you know, just by virtue of, like, the burn makeup and all that kind of things, like, Robert England is Freddy Krueger. So there's some context in terms of, you know, what the hell is happening? What are we going into? And part of the reason we wanted to do the first three Freddy films was for the arc of Nancy Thompson, who obviously isn't present in the second one. But the reason we're even talking about the second one is if you look at any internet list, (laughs) if you talk within the queer community, one of the gayest horror films to exist is A Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, which is what we're covering today. Lots of queer themes here. We have our first male scream queen in the form of Mark Patton, who plays Jesse Walsh, who is our kind of final boy, for lack of a better term, in this movie. But I wanted to give some context in terms of like what was going on in the time in the queer community as it was coming out. And then we're obviously going to talk about these themes throughout and then touch on it afterwards as well. So the film was released in 1985 and that was at the height of the AIDS epidemic in the United States, also still during the Reagan era. So obviously not very LGBT friendly, which caused a lot of stigma surrounding gay men and subsequent gay panic that was on the rise. So Mark Patton, who plays Jesse, wasn't out at the time. He came out later in life didn't want such a blatantly queer film to point fingers in his direction because at that time, you know, working gay actors were not getting the kind of roles that he was looking for and he was worried about being typecasted. 
But it ended up getting worse because the director and the writer, Jack Shoulder and David Chaskin, both fielded numerous accusations about the subtext of the film, but they denied them. So Chaskin reportedly commented that Patton and his performance were to blame for the film being as queer-coded as it was, as there was no intentional gay content in the film. This caused a lot of animosity between Patton and Chaskin over the years, but Patton went on record saying that Chaskin called his performance too gay. Okay, hold on. So did they or did they not write this movie to be gay? So the writer wanted to provide what he called subtext. Okay. But when the movie came out and it was getting bad reviews, he walked it back and said, no, there was no gayness in there. Mark Patton's just this gay guy who played this thing so gay that you're taking it as gay, but it's not gay. But then later on, as the project got further and further from him, David Chaskin's like, yeah, like there was supposed to be some subtext in there. However... There's a quote that I'll say toward the end that made it clear that, like, the director, some of the producers, they had no idea. Like, uh, like which I don't know how, if you watch this movie, you're like, this yeah. is LGBT. This is this yes. is a very queer film. But, like, if you ask the director, the producers, like, a bunch of straight dudes in the room, like, they just like, oh, this is just a horror movie and this is right. scary. But, like, they didn't know. Okay. But they, okay. <laughs> but they really did throw Mark Patton under the bus after oh. it got out that, like oh, wow, like, everyone thinks this is gay. I wonder why. And it sucks that Mark Patton, you know, he was hiding his sexuality at the time. So he obviously was bringing parts of himself to it. But he was also playing this movie as it was written to be played. Right. Even certain things about the set dressing and just, like, the colors of things. And, like, it's it's a queer movie. Yes. 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 And there's definitely one specific scene uh-huh. that we will get to that I think makes it pretty undeniable that those themes exist here. But, I mean... I'm excited to talk about it. I know that this is something we've been anticipating for a while. And even though there are a ton of similarities to the first movie, there's definitely some notable differences that I think keep this intriguing and new, even compared to the conversation we had in our last episode. Yeah. So let's get into it. How do we open? Okay. So opening scene, we have a bus rolling down the street. It's giving suburbs, children, impending doom. (laughs) (laughs) As it does. But now we see the kids on the bus. Shout out to the boy in the backseat with the boombox on his shoulder. (laughs) Slowly, you know, each kid gets dropped off at their stop. Soon we're down to three kids. There's two girls chit-chatting and then one boy closer to the back sitting alone. Then the bus rolls past. The girls stop and they're screaming. Next thing you know, Freddy is the one driving the bus. The bus breaks through some kind of road barrier. It's driving through like dirt mounds and it looks like a desert area. When it finally comes to a stop, the three kids look out the window and see that the ground beneath them is opening up. So after the ground opens up beneath them, soon the bus is suspended on like two thin like stone spire situations. Like, is that what you would call them? I wrote down, are they stalagmites or stalactites? I don't know, but they are in that realm. Then one, the second one breaks away. So it's literally balancing on one just like tiny stone spire. And it's a balancing act, right? As the kids cower to the back of the bus because Freddy's coming after them. We can see the bus teetering. It's very nerve wracking. Finally, Freddy gets closer and closer and closer. Then we cut to the next scene and we hear screaming from up the stairs as an average suburban family sits down for breakfast. 
quite an opening sequence. I did love that the bus driver is Robert England out of makeup. Oh, nice. For the first couple like parts of the scene. And then obviously he turns into Freddy. And it's important to note that in this dream, Jesse, he's our main guy. He's the boy in the dream who wakes up in bed, is characterized as, I just wrote greasy and alone. Yes, that's a great way like, to describe he, him. He is not in with the girls. He doesn't feel like he belongs. Like he's very much typecasted as like an outsider. And even like when the bus is tipping back and forth, he's hiding behind the girls. Mm-hmm. Did you notice that? Mm-hmm. Like he's not, he's not acting alpha. Like he's not acting in a way that you would expect a teen or like just any man in that situation to act. He is just as scared. He is just as weepy. He is mm-hmm. just as whatever, which you're allowed to be like if Freddie's coming after yeah. you. Like, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah, I'd be greasy and weepy. Jesse shrieks. And it's not a scream. It is a shriek. This, yes. guy, this kid has lungs on him. And, you know, we get the reactions of his mom, his dad, and his little sister, Angela, where Angela's like, why can't Jesse wake up like everybody else? <laughs> yeah, she's over it. Apparently, this has happened a couple times now. Yeah. And then we get our first look at Jesse, or what I call sweaty Jesse. Mm-hmm. This man is moist. <laughs> we are playing to the gay gaze already. This man is dripping wet, waking up from his nightmare, and finally meets his parents downstairs for breakfast. And immediately, Jesse is sassing everybody. Oh, yeah. But his dad is not helping the situation. His dad is definitely an instigator telling Jesse, did you unpack your boxes in your room yet? They have just moved into this home. Jesse's like, I'll get around to it. And he's like, okay, you better do it, son. He's like, I know. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Like, literally. Meanwhile, Angela is ferociously digging through the cereal box with her grubby hands trying to get to the prize at the bottom. She finally pulls out a set of long plastic red fingernails, puts them on. And of course, that freaks out Jesse because of the dream he just had about Freddy Krueger himself. So already a couple of Freddy-coded moments in the waking world. They get a knock at the door and Lisa arrives. And Lisa is Jesse's neighbor so that Jesse can drive them to school in his shitty car, a blue convertible. Very Glenn. Yeah, very Glenn. Coming back from the first one. So they drive to school together. You can tell there might be some crushes a-brewing, but we don't know yet. Cut to a gym class. We see men in short shorts and crop tops. Welcome to the 80s. Mm-hmm. Jesse is playing baseball while the girls are doing something else. I don't know what they're doing. And Oh, I think it was archery. Ooh. I remember seeing archery set up and I was like, that's so cool. Very phallic. Love um, it. Mm-hmm. But because Jesse is too busy looking at Lisa, he is knocked in the head with a baseball. And okay, so he's unathletic. Fine. <laughs> but then he does catch a ball eventually and tags a very athletic guy named Ron Grady out. But for some reason, this pisses Ron off to mm-hmm. such a degree where he pulls down Jesse's sweats to reveal that Jesse's wearing a jock strap and they have a half naked tussle. Yes, it is a full on pantsed sesh. Dirty tussling. Yes. So the teacher comes over, breaks up the fight, and punishes the two boys by forcing them to do push-ups. Assume the position, he ah. says. Mm. Coach Schneider, giving very Miss Desjardins with <laughs> physical punishment <Yes. laughs> for, for transgressions. <laughs> so yeah, we see the boys in their push-up positions. Their form sucks. But I was about I, to say, are they push-up positions? Yeah, I guess we're supposed to assume that their push-up form sucks so much because they've already 
done so many push-ups, but it just looks bad. They're very downward dogging. Yes. Or is that what, or is it Cobra? What is oh, it? Probably the Cobra. Probably the Cobra. Yeah. I don't do yoga. Sorry. <laughs> but during this time, they have a conversation about how Coach Schneider apparently hits up S&M clubs downtown and Grady teases Jesse. Oh, he likes pretty boys like you. So oh. maybe flirty. Maybe you're gay and I know it. Maybe. I don't know. In the locker room, he tells Jesse the history of the house that he and his family have just moved into. So confirming that, yes, they've just moved into the area. And also, yes, it just so happens to be the house that Nancy and her family used to live in in the first Nightmare on Elm Street movie. Jesse's not having it. But we cut to a next scene where he is waking up from another dream and he goes down to the kitchen to get a glass of water. I wrote down, why is he wearing scrubs for his midnight snack? I thought the same thing. He's wearing blue nursing scrubs. Yeah. What the fuck are you wearing and why? Where did you get them? Why are you wearing scrubs? But he sees movement outside, so he takes himself and his scrubs out to investigate, and he gets to the side of the house and sees Freddy, I guess through the basement window, putting stuff into a fire. I thought he was taking things out of the furnace. Maybe putting things out of the furnace fire. I couldn't understand what he... Did you see what he had? I assumed he was taking his finger knives out of the furnace in the basement. Okay. That's where the mom had hid the glove... Remember? And that's where she had that conversation with Nancy. So I assume that the finger knives are still living in the furnace. So Jesse goes back inside and goes to the basement door, opens it, looks down, sees the orange glow of the furnace. And he goes to shut the door and call for his dad to be like, yo, what the fuck? But just then Freddy's at the other end of the door. He doesn't let him shut the door. Jesse calls for his dad. Then Freddie responds from the other side of the door. Daddy can't help you now. I need you, Jesse. We got special work to do here, you and me. You've got the body. I've got the brain. Oh, my. Okay. Yeah. That's- yeah, let's unpack that. Because okay. <laughs> at this point, Freddie has, because he's magical, has appeared on the other side of the door and is yes. now up in Jesse's face. Freddie caresses Jesse's face with the knives, backs him against a wall and puts his hand on his neck. What I noted was Jesse does not seem scared until the you got the body, I got the brain reveal. He seems like he's like just accepting that this is what's happening. Mm-hmm. Freddie does what he does in the first one with Tina where he like takes his scalp off and like reveals his brain. And then that's when we get a little scream queen moment where Jesse shrieks himself yes. awake again. I also read that in this scene, Robert England wanted to put the knives in Jesse's mouth <gasps> and like put them in and out and like make it a little more on the nose as if it wasn't already on the nose. But Mark Patton's like, no, you don't need to do that. I'm oh not comfortable gosh. with that. That is, that's so sinister. I know. That reminds me kind of of the hand reaching out of Nancy's bathtub, the tongue foam. Yeah. Which I think the tongue scene in this movie might actually make me even more uncomfortable. Yeah, there is this a pretty bad tongue scene. Okay, yeah. and we'll get there. I didn't know how this movie was going to play out, like, as far as Freddy's relationship with Jesse. But this scene surprised me because I thought I was going to see something more along the lines of what I saw with Nancy, which is very, like, predatory, I'm going to kill you. But that is not what is being established here. So right away, I am interested in Freddy's decision to enlist Jesse for help in some way. It's a seduction and not a pursuing almost. Yes. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. 
So we cut to a classroom scene. I wrote classroom scene, baby. (laughs) I wrote classroom scene, talking shit, because they're literally talking about poop. And I was just like, oh, they had to work anal in here somewhere? Okay. Oh, my God. I'm like, because of course you do. Because of course they do. But then they move on to the heart. They're talking about other parts of the body or whatever. But Circulation. And Jesse's nodding off in the middle of class. And, you know, instead of seeing his friend in a body bag being, like, dragged down the hallway like Nancy did, a snake winds itself around his neck. Immediately, I'm thinking, dream, right? And everything's a dick. And that also wasn't what I was thinking, which, (laughs) (laughs) which, I don't know, but I am thinking that now. But when Jesse wakes up, there really is a snake around his neck. The class is laughing at him and the teacher comes up to him and yells at him to not play with snakes. And I'm like, wait a minute. (laughs) Wait a minute. There is really a snake wrapped around this boy's neck and the teacher is mad at this boy. That's on you, Mr. Teacher. (laughs) Like, you gotta lock up that snake. And that he was mad at Jesse. Anyway, it was so strange. And none of the kids are scared. They're laughing. This is another moment in this movie where I'm like, no one is reacting the right way. Like, what is going on? But it's also funny because Jesse's obviously scared, right? Like, he fell asleep and woke up with a snake around his neck. But then I noted he looks over at Grady, his little, you know, naked tussle friend. Mm -hmm. And he, like, starts smiling when he sees Grady, that he made Grady laugh. So I'm like, oh. Next scene And another thing about this movie, this movie loves to cut scenes, scene cut after scene cut. So anyway, we cut. Lisa's swimming in her pool. She gets a call from Jesse. Right when Jesse is about to leave to meet her, dad, of course, makes him go back upstairs and finish unpacking, right? We still have some unfinished business there. So cue cleaning slash dancing montage. Jesse does cleaning the right way, in my opinion. Puts on like a baller fucking dance anthem. He pretends to dance. He has this popper toy that he waves around and then pretends as his dick and pops it right as his mother and Lisa enter his room. He's also like bumping his butt against a drawer to shut it like back and forth. And I'm like, (laughs) lots of thrusting. Lots of thrusting. Mm. Apparently that scene specifically like played in gay clubs all the time in the 80s. Like that (laughs) dance montage was just like- It was good. It it, was a good dance montage. Not as good as prom Nothing will ever be good. As as prom night. But (laughs) it's in a good contender for dance sequences. But of course it's- awkward because he pops this toy hovering right over where his dick would be right as his mom and I guess crush or somebody coded as a crush of his walks in the room. It's awkward. Lisa offers to help him unpack. And as she's doing so, she finds an old dusty diary that is from Nancy. Yeah. And the diary is also next to a board game called Probe, which- oh. I did. I missed that. That and there's also like a no chicks allowed sign on the door. I'm like, I wonder why. Anyway. So Lisa reads an entry out loud, which is about Nancy watching Glenn undress sometimes and get ready for bed. Definitely very sexual. So Jesse takes a turn, but the entry he reads is very clearly about Nancy's experience with Freddie. And he gets freaked out because he notices right away the similarities between what Nancy is writing and the dreams that he has had. And if we haven't made it clear, Jesse's family moved into Nancy's old house. Yeah. The story being that 
What did Grady say in the locker room that like the mom went crazy and killed herself killed in the herself. living room? And Nancy went crazy because she saw her boyfriend get murdered across the street. Right. But he didn't say anything about Nancy dying. Yes. So Nancy is still canonically alive. And this is also where I had a logistical question of like, wouldn't Lisa know about all this being that she's like the next door neighbor? When she saw the diary, she said something like, it's before my time. Oh, okay. But we heard later, and we'll get to this later, when Jesse asks his dad if he knew about the family that previously lived there, that the house had been for sale for five years. So I'm like, five years and it's before your time? I mean, also, like, five years between, what, these are high school students, so maybe, what are they, sophomores, juniors? Sure, yeah. Five years before that, you're, like, actually, like, a young, like, baby child. So, I guess maybe cognitively you were checked out and you didn't know what was going on, especially if you were young and maybe your parents were trying to keep you shielded from crazy, crazy neighborhood happenings. So, cut to another scene, because, again, (laughs) we do not like transitions in this movie. We like to get to the point. Jesse wakes up to things melting in his room, very Salvador Dali style. It's very waxy looking. It's very drippy looking. I did notice that. It looks, I don't know what melted candle wax looks like, but I think that you could think that knowing that this movie has sexual undertones, like, what do you think it looks like? That's just like all around his room and all around his bed area. I don't know. Let's just be creative. (laughs) So he sees that, exits the room, and I made note that he's wearing what Grady wore in the opening scene. Really? He's wearing like a gray crew neck and red bottoms. He's not wearing shorts and it's not a crop top, but it's like almost like Grady's clothes. So I'm like, interesting. Enters the basement, finds the glove in the furnace. Freddie appears, goads Jesse to put it on, is like, kill for me. Jesse wakes up, but notices that the glove is still in his possession. Mm -hmm. So, okay, we're starting to bring things back from the dream world. We're connecting with the rules. Cut to another scene. We are in school again. The constant volley between home and school, home and school, sleep in school, sleep in school. The only thing this scene is really good for is letting us know that A, there's going to be a party at Lisa's house in a couple days. And B, Lisa kisses Jesse on the cheek, which is showing us that they're becoming closer and perhaps more romantically involved. Back in gym class, <laughs> Jesse and Grady are in the locker room once again. Jesse makes a comment to Grady about Schneider having a stick up his ass. Schneider overhears and sentences the boys to more push-ups. More bad lower back push-ups. Mm-hmm. That night, back at home, the family is sitting in the living area and they start commenting on the heat. This is something that Jesse commented on in the first scene, but now it's something that the family is noticing as well. Dad checks the thermostat and it's 97 degrees, which makes me laugh that it took the temperature to get up to 97 degrees before they noticed. <laughs> like, like 97 degrees that's, inside? That's really stinking hot. Like, that's crazy. So next thing we know, the bird cage starts shaking a little bit. Jesse checks, a dead bird falls out, and the other one comes out and starts attacking everyone. Then, when all hope seems gone with this bird, it spontaneously combusts. And the family kind of still moves around the house looking for a gas leak or something to figure out what the F is going on. But yeah, that's pretty much the end of that scene. Except the dad blames Jesse. The dad dad, is the worst. The dad thinks like, oh, you put a firecracker and you killed the bird and you're doing this because you're on drugs or whatever. And it's just like, (laughs) what? What are you? No. No, sir. What's Mm -hmm. What the hell is going on? But He becomes more and more like frustrated and removed, I think, as the movie goes on. 
I did read that this scene did injure the dad actor. Like, the actual, like, fake bird flew into his eye and hurt his eye. Oh, my gosh. Which was, like, ouch. But also, like, it's meant to be, like, a mining reference. Like, about how, like, when, like, something's going on in a mine, like, the birds will be the first thing to tell you that something's wrong. If things are going to collapse. Like, have you... You know the reference I'm talking about? Like, I don't know exactly... Yeah. Like, the birds will fly out. Yes. So, that was supposed to be the warning that, like, Freddy's in the house, Mm -hmm. like, doing whatever. Also, like, the Elm Street franchise has a weird thing about making animals goopy and weird we have two more instances of that Mm -hmm. later in this movie with rats and dogs and it's just like stop leave the animals alone Mm -hmm. they don't look good they're not scary i don't know what they're doing (laughs) whatever another night another walk through the house (laughs) jesse stands by the kitchen window and lightning strikes the plates drying on the rack beautiful and that's it jesse leaves the house and he finds himself at a establishment called Dom's Place. He enters. I wrote, he is not carded. (laughs) Even though he's in like, he looks like a small boy and he's wearing like a open pajama shirt. I wrote, this is a sexy joint. We see leather on men and women, leather mommies and daddies. Yes. Um, The bartender has spiky cuffs. Okay. So this Perhaps is the BDSM place we heard rumors about in the early scene with Grady and Jesse. Right as he orders a beer and is about to take his first drink, Coach Snyder shows up, kind of gives him an expression like, busted. And we cut to the next scene where Coach Snyder stands guard while Jesse runs laps in the school's gymnasium. So he's being punished yet again. So Elise and I were talking about this prior to recording because this is where the movie starts to derail the Freddy logic a little bit in terms of what is actually happening versus what is actually a dream. Because I was under the impression that the S&M club sequence was a dream that was meant to represent Jesse's latent sexuality. Like he was fantasizing about S&M joints and even perhaps up until the point where he is running barefoot laps in the gym for his very like daddy um, coach in <laughs> yes. this moment. Uh-huh. Like that could be something that he would be wanting. But the next scene that we see is Jesse getting sent to the showers and then coaches in his office and his sports equipment begins to assault him. Tennis balls, Balls, basketballs, lots of flying (laughs) balls, which I'm sure he loves. Balls to the face. Great. (laughs) I also wrote down not reacting appropriately. Like, he just kind of looks like inconvenienced at best. At one point, he gets up and locks the cabinet after all the balls have already flown out of the cabinet. This is the least of your concerns, Uh, (laughs) sir. Maybe you're liking this a little too much. But he's not liking it when jump ropes start to pull him by the wrists Mm. into the shower tie him up, strip him, and then an unseen force begins spanking his bare ass with a towel. So bizarre. (laughs) And the people filming this are like, oh yeah, this is just a horror movie. Yeah. Okay, not gay Uh, at all. They're all liars. They are liars if they didn't pick up on anything. Jesse's watching, but not in horror. Not in horror. Yeah, he almost, he seems... Kind of like captivated almost. Mm -hmm. And we've seen that expression before, right? Like in those scenes earlier with Freddy, like this isn't the first time that he's been a little bit taken by the events that are occurring before him that other folks might freak the fuck out over. Next thing we know, Freddy arrives and kills the coach. But then we see Jesse looks down at his hand and he's the one wearing the Freddy glove. And he screams. <laughs> and I, I laughed because his scream is 
Did he really do the screams? It yes, just, those are his screams. Oh my god, it just doesn't <laughs> sound like it, it. It doesn't sound like it's coming from him. I don't know what it is about it, but it's a very feminine scream. Yeah. It's a very high pitch feminine scream. But again, we're trying to figure out. Okay, so we're understanding that Freddie is beginning to possess Jesse to perhaps be doing things in the outside world. So it was Jesse asleep. But if he was asleep, why was Coach in the showers? Well, was he sleepwalking? Like, yes. what's the logic here? The whole thing seems like it would make a lot of sense as a dream. Like, the whole fantasizing about the coach, the clubs, imagining those things. Even the fear of, am I becoming Freddy or am I having these darker urges, like, to kill? But then, the next day, Jesse takes Lisa to school again. There's police everywhere. And we find out that Coach was actually killed. So not a dream. Especially too, because that night the police drop a naked Jesse off That's at right. home. <laughs> They're like, oh, we found this one just wandering the highway in the rain naked. Uh, I'd keep a short leash on this one if I were you. And it's just like, are not concerned? It does feel like based on stories that I've heard about the 80s, like true crime stories through like podcasts or TV shows, those sorts of things were really not taken seriously as often back then. Today, it would be like red alarm, full investigation. But back then, they were like, all right, we got your naked kid. Here they are. Give him some soup. Put him to bed. Keep him inside. Yes. <laughs> the dad thinks he's on drugs. The mom's like, just go to bed. And then, interesting, because it made me think of the hallow, dad taking bars off the windows the next day. Yes. Interesting. Not that we've seen the bars have a lot of bearing on Freddy being able to do anything, but just the fact that the dad, again, is doing nothing to protect his kid. Yes. He's doing everything actually in the opposite to protect his kid. Him and the mom have a like, he needs a kick in the ass. Yep. He doesn't need therapy. Blah. Unsurprising. Yeah. Then Jesse and Lisa find out that coach is dead. Another scene. Jesse wakes up sweaty. <laughs> mm -hmm. They close up on his bulge in his tidy whities They have a very intentional scene about it. Great. He sees the glove moving and shaking, the Freddy glove moving and shaking in the drawer, and voices saying, kill for me. And then he starts to wander the house. He peeks into his sister's room and finds her singing the Freddy theme song and jump roping in slow motion. He does not seem at all alarmed and slowly closes the door. Next morning, <laughs> Jesse in the kitchen confronts dad about the house. So this is where we find out that, yes, the dad did know about what had happened here before. That is why the house was for sale for five years, because nobody wanted it, but that's how he got the deal. In the heat of this argument, the toaster catches on fire. And I wrote throwback to the tongue phone. <laughs> it is not plugged in. So extra spooky. So Jesse decides to confide in Lisa about his dreams. This is where I wrote Lisa begins her thinking Jesse is a medium arc. Yes, she I'm is like, so convinced. I'm like, what is this plot line? Because then she just starts parading Jesse all around town. It's like, do you feel anything? Like, yes. like so I'm just like, first of all, Lisa, why are you so calm? And second of all, what the fuck is going on? Because she's <laughs> the one who really starts doing this research. Like usually in these movies, we see the final girl really doing the research or trying to figure out the mystery where Jesse's just there. Like he's just experiencing things. And Lisa's the one that is doing all of this research. So she has Jesse drive them to a power plant that Freddy Krueger worked at. And she knows Freddy Krueger's name because she is in possession of the diary, the Nancy diary. 
you know, starts walking him around. It's like, do you feel anything? Like, how does this feel? Like, do you feel closer to it? And this is where Lisa dumps the exposition of this is where he worked. And this is where he also killed 20 children. Again, I wrote just Lisa doing the most for her crush right now. And Jesse, like, could not be bothered. Yeah, it does feel like as Jesse kind of continues on this villain arc, like, she seems to almost assume the role of the final girl. Mm-hmm. We kind of have, like, an interesting divergence from what we think we're going to see. And Lisa is played by Kim Myers. And something that's interesting about that is Mark Patton chose Kim Myers to play Lisa. Like they did a screen test together and he was like, you need to get her. Like you need to get her. So I I think that's cute. I thought that they did pretty good together. I mean, there's so much about this movie that's awkward, but I thought for what it was, they had pretty good dynamic. And I thought she did a pretty good job of like selling that she was convinced that this was actually happening. You know what I mean? I also... Saw an interview with Kim Myers that said that I don't know if Jesse and Lisa ever got to the point of romantic, but they could be the will and grace of the horror genre. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, it is kind of like that, isn't it? <laughs> Meanwhile, we see the furnace light up in the basement of Jesse's house, and the camera then pans across the basement, moves up the stairs through the living room, up the stairs to the second floor, looks in at little Angela, Jesse's sister, sleeping in her bed. Right away, I was like, oh my God, she's starting to dream about Freddy. Oh my God, Mm -hmm. it's spreading. But then the camera shows that Freddy, quote unquote, is actually Jesse. And he tucks her in with Freddy's glove on. (laughs) Very scary. So the next morning, because it's always night versus morning, Jesse is super moody as he gets into the car with Lisa, and he will not talk to her about what's been going on. And at school, he snaps at Grady, who's also kind of giving him shit. I wrote, Grady is repulsive because he's just talking <laughs> oh, through yeah. perennial, like, <laughs> like food in his mouth. And he's like, oh, <laughs> like, like, he's just like being like the grossest man. And I'm like, what are you doing? And yes, Jesse's being very sassy, being like, shut up, Grady. Like, what, mm-hmm. what the hell is going on? Lisa's trying to help. No avail. It reminds me of kind of some of the things we talked about in the first movie about talking about things, confronting things. Like Lisa is really starting to not let up on the whole, like, you need to talk about what's going on. And Jesse's retreating more and more and more into not even saying anything. He doesn't want to talk about anything. He's just content to be moody and mad all the time. Next scene. Pool party, baby. Lisa's party is in full swing. I wrote Lisa is sweet and Jesse is spicy. Yeah, I wrote everyone looks fab except for Jesse. <laughs> so like he's, he's like all gray and tired and he's pissed off. Yeah, he's like sitting in the corner and then he like retreats <laughs> to the cabana and is like, you know what? Like this isn't my scene, like whatever. So he goes to change. Lisa follows him into the cabana. They're fighting because Jesse's being fucking nasty. Yeah. But then he kind of softens when she offers to stay up all night with him. She's like, we'll stay up all night. We'll do what it takes. And I think that that strikes a tender chord with him because Mm -hmm. she's showing like, I am willing to be here for you. And it seems like that's something that he hasn't been getting, even though he did originally reach out for it in the beginning. So they begin to kiss. And I'm like, what kind of kisses (laughs) are these? I wrote me kissing men. Like, because I'm like, what (laughs) the fuck? Are these two doing? Like, yeah, they it w- definitely was awkward, but they're also kids. They're kids, but like you could tell that there's no chemistry whatsoever. <laughs> like they are missing turns. It's like they're kissing like, the way they think they should be kissing. There's just so much going on. <laughs> they're missing turns. They're missing turns. They're hitting <laughs> potholes. They're jumping medians. Like there's just not a lot. <laughs> there's they're, 
they're going down one ways. Like there's just not a lot going on. And then it goes from like that to crazy to uh, anyway. <laughs> so we have a couple scenes intercut with this, right? So while there's the attempts at kissing and making out, Lisa's mom and dad, who had been chaperoning the party and flipping the burgers and all that, go to bed. When the kids see the lights in their room go out, they take it as their cue to really amp up this party. They turn off the like smooth jazz that had been playing and they put on like 80s pop. They get out the beer, right? The tone totally changes. It's a super raucous party. And Lisa and Jesse are still in the cabana. It looks like they're about to bone. Lisa's shirt is undone. Jesse has his hands on her breasts. He is about to lick her chest. <laughs> oh my god. And when his tongue pops out, it is the most upsetting thing <laughs> in the entire world. Um, of course, Lisa's eyes are shut, right? Like she's enjoying herself or trying to enjoy herself. Jesse's tongue is long and gray and thick. It must be at least eight inches yeah. to, to ten inches long. And he sees it out licking her chest and freaks out, somehow manages to get himself together, and he just leaves. So then Jesse reappears in Grady's bedroom. How? This is so interesting to me, which this is the moment, not the moment, but one of the moments where I was like, okay, this is very gay because Lisa the whole time has been like, I'm the one. I'm the one. Let Talk me help me. you. Yeah. Let me help. But he does not go to her. Mm-hmm even though she has made it abundantly clear that she has the time, the headspace, the capacity, like she is the one that's willing to help. But yes, he shows up to Grady's room, which also is like, did people really just walk into each other's rooms? That's where I'm like, <laughs> like, how'd you get upstairs? Who let you in? What's going on? Yeah. Anyway, Grady is not into it. This idea of Jesse being over, Jesse asks to sleep over. Grady responds, why don't you go home and take a bottle of sleeping pills? <laughs> Damn. Jesse responds, something is trying to get inside my body. And Grady responds, yeah, she's female and she's waiting for you in the cabana and you want to sleep with me. And this also comes after Jesse confesses to the coach's murder. So like, yeah, I don't know if my like sleep deprived friend shows up pacing and tweaking. It's like, I killed somebody, but I need you to watch me sleep tonight. Like getting put on Glenn detail. But also Grady never gave off any vibe that he would be the one to help. Like there is nothing about Grady that seems like it would be helpful or trustworthy. Not in like a bad way. He just hasn't played that role in this movie. Like he's been pretty distant except for the gym scenes we've seen him in. Like we don't really even know him that much. You know, there's a way that you could have spun it where it's like, I care too much about Lisa. So I'm going to try to get like my buff friend Grady to help. But they never do that. Mm -mm. Like the fact that we're walking away with this impression, like they never get there. They never do that. And I also wrote down, it's very interesting how in this one, it's only Jesse with the dreams. Because it's obvious, like, Lisa lives on Elm Street. She lives, like, next door. And assuming that, like, Grady's, like, around town and doing whatever. And, like, I get it's the point that I guess Freddy's trying to break it into the real world so he can kill more people. So he has to be, like, more specific. Is he, like, gaining back strength after the first movie, maybe? Because he lost so much. The second one deviates from the lore so much because in every other movie, it's like this idea of you have to remember him or you have to know his name mm. for him to start impacting you. Whereas like in the second one, and even to to the degree some way at the third one, you just have to be on Elm Street. So if Lisa's on Elm Street, like shouldn't she also in turn be having some familiarity if Tina and Nancy and Glenn were all being impacted? 
they enact the Watch Me Sleep Plan 2.0. Yes. So Grady does stay awake for some time surfing the channels, but then he decides to go to bed after Jesse seems pretty chill sleeping for a little while. But almost immediately after he says goodnight to himself, I guess, Jesse wakes up crying and saying it's happening again. Shortly after that, blades start growing from Jesse's fingertips. His arms and hands become absolutely shredded and falling apart, much like Freddy's body is when we see it. Grady tries to leave, but his door is locked. He starts screaming for his dad with no luck. Jesse screams, and inside of his mouth, we can see Freddy's eye looking out. Then Jesse slices himself open with his claw hand and Freddy comes popping out of Jesse's body, (laughs) which in my head, I'm like, that's it. Bye, Jesse. Yeah. Right. You're done. Cue Grady's parents. So they have arrived, which I thought was really nice. I thought this was going to be another example of absent parent, Um, but they try to get in. The door is locked. Then we see the blades of Freddy's glove or jesse's glove slice through the door and we see that he had sliced through grady sliced through the door grady is dead he slumps over dead and we see when the camera pans back around it is not freddy standing there it is a fully intact and alive jesse staring in horror at what has just happened and I noted, like, this time, like, he doesn't scream. Like, he's sobbing. He is heartbroken. Mm-hmm. And he sees Freddy in the mirror. He looks in the mirror, and he doesn't see himself looking back. He sees mm-hmm. Freddy, and Freddy's, like, taunting him. And he's like, you know, you bastard, you killed him. Da-da. Like, he just lost his best friend. But he also, like, this this was the most devastating thing you could have done for yeah. him. I wrote, Jesse pulls a rod and escapes out the window. Yeah. Just covered in blood and just, like, <laughs> runs out. Runs back to Lisa's walks into the house covered in blood. This reminded me so much of Idle Hands. Mm-hmm. The scene when oh, What's-His-Face gets to... Oh my god, what is her name? What, it's Jessica Alba and Devin yeah. Sawa? So yeah, yeah, yeah. Molly, Molly. Molly, Molly, Molly. Yeah, so Devin Sawa gets to Jessica Alba's house and he is like standing there like totally like tweaking out, trying to like get his hand to stop possessing his body. And she's just like, hey! <laughs> Like, this reminded me so much of that moment because originally Lisa, in her eyes, Jesse can do no wrong. Like, he shows up and is like, I killed somebody. This is all the blood. And she's like, oh. (laughs) Endless breaks to give Jesse. (laughs) Like, not enough concern to the fact that the boy that you have a crush on is covered in somebody else's blood Mm -hmm. and is, like, walking around being like, I killed Grady. I killed Coach. (laughs) I killed everybody. He is inside me. I'm scared, and he wants to take me again. Mm-hmm. And like, I really liked this piece of dialogue. It might be a throwaway line, but I liked the way that it was delivered. Is Lisa's like, "It's okay, we'll be fine." Like all this kind of stuff. And Jesse turns to Lisa's like, "What do I have to do to make you understand me?" Oh. And it's like you can read that so many ways, where it's like you're not hearing me, and you need to hear me that I just killed somebody. But it's also in my mind because I'm reading so much into this about Jesse being a queer character. You can't help me. Like, this isn't something that you can, like, love me through, which by the time we get to the end, I give up. Okay. Yeah, 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 I guess you can. But, like, (laughs) Jesse's saying, like, he owns me. Mm Mm-hmm. 
I will say, like, she does seem to change her approach with him after that conversation. Like, she kind of gives up trying to rationalize what's going on or talk him down from thinking these things. Like, she seems like she does try to believe him or she does try to take what he's saying word for word after this point. But we're back at the party and things are heating up, not only sexually, (laughs) okay, but like temperature wise, the pool is steaming. The hot dogs and beer cans are starting to explode. And Lisa, I guess in her desperation, this is when she reads the end of Nancy's diary and finally starts trying to convince Jesse that the key to beating this is trying to take away Freddy's power. Yeah, she's like, fight it, Jesse. He's living off your fear. He doesn't exist. Which again, I'm reading into like closet lore. I'm reading into like, fight it. It doesn't exist. It's not real. Like, uh. And he does not seem into that. Nope. He's not into that. Meanwhile, the doors around the house um, are starting to shut and lock themselves. The fenced-in yard that the kids are in shuts and locks, and other things are still exploding. And the kids are kind of like, ooh, ah, but nobody is like, bye. I don't know. <laughs> like, I feel <laughs> But also, I guess... Maybe they're drunk. What are you supposed to do when random little things start exploding? Also, the pool is boiling. Well, they get distracted because this is where Jesse starts to get the feeling that Freddie is coming back. Oh, yeah. And then commotion starts. Lights explode, doors lock, Freddie appears. And Freddie is now in Freddie form and is telling Lisa, he can't fight me. I am him. Again, queer subtext. Freddie chases Lisa, bites her leg. Cute. Um, Lisa- <laughs> oh, this is when the pool is boiling. Yes. A lot of cutting scenes happening, but Lisa's calling for Jesse, and you see it's starting to work a little bit because you hear Jesse's voice coming out of Freddie's mouth saying, kill me, Lisa, please kill me. And Lisa gives some weak sauce stabs <laughs> at Freddie's shoulder. But it doesn't work because Freddie is undead, I guess. That and then I don't know if this is Freddie trying to like harm Lisa or if this is actually Jesse breaking through. Like you hear an I love you, Lisa, and that makes Lisa drop the knife. So is that Freddie manipulating the situation or is that Jesse really trying to like reach out? I had the same thought and I do not know. I think Jesse inside of Freddie gets Freddie to back off like with that I love you or whatever. And Freddie jumps through the window and disappears. Then he pops out of a sewer grate and attacks everyone (laughs) at the pool. Kids are being sliced. uh, They're being thrown into the boiling pool. Some kid tries to go to Freddy and talk to him. He gets killed. Freddy says to all the kids, you are all my children now. The dad and mom finally get out of their bedroom. Dad gets his gun. He tries to shoot Freddy. It doesn't work. Like, well, Lisa stops her dad from shooting yeah. Freddy because she knows that Jesse's in there. And she sees so much good in him. Oh, my God. So he leaves. I guess this might be another instance of Jesse getting back some kind of control, like control enough to leave. He fucking walks into a lattice that turns on fire and then disappears. And this is why I don't like this. Like this scene <laughs> is like the Bane. Me and pool scenes. Oh, yeah. We don't. <laughs> we don't get along. Me, me and pool scenes in horror movies because except Jennifer's body. That one's great. But other, <laughs> but like other than that. And this is where the filmmakers have, like, come back and, like, Wes Craven really hated this. It's, like, the fact that, like, what is the logic of this situation? Because 
It would make sense if there was a scene that showed that Jesse was in a dream and brought Freddy back into the real world with him. And then he was interacting with the real world. But like, to our knowledge, Jesse did not fall asleep. He just got possessed. So in my mind, like, are they seeing Jesse as this antagonist? Because the fact that this teenage kid would be like, yo, man, we're cool. Like, does he see Jesse or does he see Freddy? That was really interesting to me because that kid was also doing sort of what Lisa was doing, which Mm -hmm. is trying to listen, but he still ended up dead. Or are we supposed to believe that that kid was insincere? He was just doing it as a means of survival instead of concern. I don't know, but it was strange. Then Lisa takes it upon herself to follow him, assuming that, I guess, he's going to the old power plant. So she gets there. She's walking around. Shay looks exhausted. Shay is tired. Um, she ends up, you know, climbing up some metal steps at one point, comes face to face with a rat. Who was guarding the power oh, plant? Oh, my God. Two dogs wearing human faces. Baby masks. Baby. Two Rottweilers <laughs> and baby masks. And she's just kind of like... Okay. And just kind of walks right by them. What like, the what? fuck? It was so strange. Dogs wearing BB masks. She passes them by, walks deeper into the plant. She burns herself, which I wrote. I was like, I guess this is supposed to tell us that she's not dreaming. But at this point, with all of the confusion, who even knows? She sees a scary cat eat a scary mouse. And then she starts to run away. Free Elm Street from these possessed animals is all I'm saying. <laughs> like, get them um, out of here. Then as she's kind of crossing this overhanging walkway, it opens beneath her and she's dangling there. But then all of a sudden she checks again and she's not dangling. And her bite is rotting. Like her bite is like having like maggots and stuff. So yeah, I was confused too. I'm like, is she asleep? How is Freddy teleporting if he's in the real world? But then we do kind of see her dozing at some point. So it's like, okay, I guess she's dreaming. Whatever. Yeah, it's, it's strange. Like things keep happening and then she realizes they're not actually happening. Then Freddy's there. Lisa pleads for Jesse. She tells him she loves him. And this is enough that Freddy starts bleeding from where he was stabbed earlier. So, oh, are we seeing some of the human come back? She comes to Freddy and he tells her, he'll die with me. He'll die with both of us. But then she kisses him. She kisses Freddy's mouth. And I wrote, she's committed. She's caressing his face. Yes. She says, I'm not afraid of you. He's in there. I want him back. I'm going to take him from you. Come back to me, Jesse. I wrote that she just love bombs Jesse back. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then the whole place catches on fire. Freddy slumps over and appears to die also as the fire dies down. But then his arm moves. Okay. He's not dead. He takes off his charred face like a Scooby-Doo mask reveal. And it's Jesse. Jesse. Yeah, Lisa cradles Jesse. Okay, so like when the bite thing was happening, I wrote down, I want a Jennifer's body like transfer of power where Lisa can jump through dreams. <laughs> yeah. I want like that a spin cool. I want like a spin off because it's like, okay, she got bit by Freddy Krueger and survived. So like what's Yo. her like and the thing is like, okay, obviously we're covering the third one. The third one is called Dream Warriors. Like it's literally like teenagers with dream powers. And like, <gasps> where is Lisa? Because Lisa should have a dream power because she got bit and survived. So it's like how needy got bit by Jennifer and like is like part succubus, but not really. I'm like, mm-hmm. what's Lisa's power? Mm-hmm. Anyway, I just was like, I need that spin-off in my life. Well, as Lisa goes to Jesse, he doesn't look happy. He's like, oh, you're not Grady. Yeah. I thought he was going to kill her after all because he still looked that removed. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I guess he had just been through a lot. 
Anyway, he eventually falls into her embrace, never really changing his facial expression or anything. Just seems out of pure exhaustion. Yeah. And the last scene we get, it's the same ending sequence as the original, where it's a hazy-like bus driving situation. Jesse's kind of freaking out because he doesn't know if it's safe or not. But eventually the bus driver turns out to be Freddy again, and they Mm -hmm. drive into the desert, and it's kind of like a retake on the first one. There's a Freddy claw that comes flying out through one of their friend's chests as a jump scare. And yeah, that's the end of the movie. Yay! Yay! (laughs) So let's talk about how gay this movie is. Okay, yes. Okay, so there's a couple articles here. I'm just going to read the articles because kind of like took pieces of all of them and acclimated them together. So the main articles that I'm working off of here are The Nightmare Behind the Gayest Horror Film Ever Made by Louis Peitzman from BuzzFeed. A Nightmare on Elm Street 2's Queer Subtext Was Intentional by Jack Wilhelmy from Screen Rant and A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, The Horror of Coming Out in 80s America by Neil Baker, which is a Cinerama film article. This is from the Horror of Coming Out in the 80s article by Neil Baker. Despite its financial success, A Nightmare on Elm Street 2 faced significant backlash from critics and the public on its release. The backlash would see its lead actor, Mark Patton, who plays Jesse, all but ostracized in Hollywood, his promising career hitting a roadblock of institutionalized homophobia. While at the same time, the film's writer and director were happy to throw the young actor under the bus of homophobia and ridicule rather than accept the film's LGBTQ plus themes. So this is what I talked about in the beginning, where there was subtext written in by the writer, David Chaskin. But once the backlash came, he denied it and then instead said Mark Patton's performance was a little too gay. David Chaskin says he never said that. Mark Patton says he did. It's been contested. Don't know who's telling the truth, but I'm inclined to believe Mark Patton. So that really caused Mark Patton to quit acting for nearly 25 years just due to the unresolved like anger and trauma from the Mm. fallout of Nightmare 2. He is now prideful of being the first male scream queen, thanks to a lot of love from the queer community. But he had a rough go. He like lost a partner to AIDS. I think he ended up being HIV positive himself. Obviously, on this podcast, we like to center women. And that's kind of like our deal. But being that this film is so important in LGBTQ lore and all these types of things, I felt it was important to tell a little bit about Mark Patton's journey. So this is writer David Chaskin actually admitting to the gay themes <laughs> okay. and talking a little bit about what he was thinking about when he had this in mind. So this is from the Nightmare Behind the Gayest Horror Film Ever Made by Louis Peitzman. Writer David Chaskin went on to note that in terms of gay themes, very few people on production got it. It's possible that some of the additions to the film that Patton interpreted as homoerotic and the film's largely queer fan base has come to accept as homoerotic were not directly intended to be. Patton concedes that most of the people involved in the film were truly unaware of what was going on, stating they were just dumb straight guys who didn't have a clue. Now that the tide has turned toward widespread acceptance of gay representation, Chaskin is upfront about the queer undertones he deliberately wrote into his script. As far as his motivation for queering A Nightmare on Elm Street, he said he was responding to the social and political climate for gay people in the 1980s. Without directly bringing up issues of homophobia in the AIDS epidemic, he wanted to explore and respond to the gay panic that was gripping the nation. He says, homophobia was skyrocketing, and I began to think about our core audience, adolescent boys, and how all of this stuff might be trickling into their psyches at an age when raging hormones often produce dreams and urges that make them, if only unconsciously, begin to question their own sexuality. My thought was that tapping into that angst would give an extra edge to the horror. What do we think about that? The thing for me that I think is 
and we were kind of talking about this before, like, you know, coding our like queer main character as this budding villain or this changing villain. Like, you know, we got to see Nancy as this really amazing scream queen who came out on top, did her research, did what she needed to do and defeated Freddy. But here we have a gay character who is very vulnerable to Freddy. Also, I think it's interesting, and we've kind of been asking this question, like, why only Jesse? Why not the other kids on Elm Street? Was it just the house? Was it that Jesse was maybe at this time, since he was coded as queer, is he seen also as a sexual deviant? Just like mm. Freddie was also a sexual deviant himself. And of course, there is no comparison right. between pedophilia, gay, queer. Like there is no comparison. But in the 80s, you know, back in that culture where those things were still contested, like how long did it take for, quote, homosexuality to be taken out of the psychology book? of like mental diseases, right? Like we're still kind of in that time in history, especially with the AIDS epidemic, where we're dealing with a lot of negative connotations that come with being gay. And so I think muddying that relationship between Jesse's sexuality and also Freddie's sexuality and like the connection that they have, I don't know. I don't think that ultimately leads for a strong or a positive representation of a gay man here. That leads really beautifully into another aspect of this. So this quote is from the A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, The Horror of Coming Out in the 80s by Neil Baker. So he actually addresses that like predatory nature Mm. that comes with a lot of the queer-coded people in this movie. So he writes, while it's true that A Nightmare on Elm Street 2 may or may not have been fully conscious of its LGBTQ plus themes, there's also a much darker side to the overarching sexuality and masculinity conversations present, the dangerous 80s perception of gay men as predators. Mm -hmm. Here, the older men surrounding Jesse are clearly defined as predatory from Coach Schneider to Kruger. Their interest is in Jesse's young body. This theme plays into the dangerous 80s commentary of older men as the manipulators of innocent teenage boys. Here, Lisa's role as the female savior plays into this narrative as she helps Jesse conquer his homosexuality with heterosexual love. Yeah. Whether or not these themes were purposefully included as commentary on the perception of gay men and homosexuality in the 80s, America is debatable. However, they do interface with the social panic surrounding homosexuality in 80s America. But the darkest undertone of A Nightmare on Elm Street 2 is the notion that a child molester would pick a gay teenage boy to continue his work. Again, this is open to debate, but tied to social perceptions of gay men as potential abusers with chunks of the movie openly supporting and encouraging this view. So I think your take really hit that on the head where it's like, yeah, okay, we're going to give you gays, but the gays that we're going to give you are the gays that you should be afraid of. And again, this came out in the Reagan era, so not a very LGBTQ plus friendly space to be in. You know, he was denying the connection between AIDS and the LGBTQ community at the time and like allocating appropriate resources to the epidemic that it truly was. I mean, we know that historically that like HIV AIDS was not taken seriously until it started to infiltrate straight families. Yeah. With, I think of like Ryan White. Yeah. The yeah. Hemophilia, blood transfusions, things like that. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So there's a lot to be said there. Although I do appreciate, obviously, I'm not a gay boy, but I I am a gay girl. So, like, I do appreciate, to some degree, the fear that constitutes your coming out experience and how horrifying that can be when you don't feel as though you're in a space that you can come into that in a safe way. It really does, at points, at least in my experience, like, felt like that life or death or felt like I was turning into this monster that I was almost like the Babadook in the basement. Like, I just deny, deny, deny the stronger I get. 
And obviously, we know that movie's kind of a bit of a queer allegory as well. But like, I do appreciate that even if the representation isn't perfect, obviously, the queer community heralds this Mm -hmm. as like such like a, oh, my God, like gay movie, like in a positive way. So even if the movie on the nose wasn't supposed to be allegorical to Jesse fighting heterosexuality with his burgeoning gayness or his burgeoning queerness... I do appreciate that like torment aspect that the coming out process can entail and that it was very truthful to that. Like the night sweats, the nightmares, the fantasies that come out. Even like I'm thinking about the Angela scene where he's over his sister's bed, like that idea that he could be like this predator, like this. Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just this idea that he's dangerous, that he's not safe and he won't be safe to her anymore. Like he might lose that relationship with her. Like I'm reading into it, obviously, but I do really appreciate that by personifying Freddie as this fear and as this thing that he can't get out of himself, even Freddie's dialogue about Jesse can't get rid of me. I am him. Because obviously the way the movie ends, like, it doesn't affirm that. Jesse and Lisa end up together, and he does end up being able to vanquish Freddy with the undying love of a woman. But it's still, I don't know, like, I, that's, I think that's why I'm drawn to it so much, is that it exemplifies that desperation so well, I think. I like what you said. Like, if we're looking at this through the lens of more, like, Freddy is an allegory for, like, the fears that come with reconciling with one's sexuality. Like, if this is a boy in the 80s who is coming to terms with his sexuality, of course he's gonna realize he's gay and then start fearing, am I going to become the way that Mm. I've seen other gay people portrayed to me? Like, are those representations fact? And does that mean that that's what I am going to become? So like, I do like that. It's a more, I think, not positive read, but less like marrying Jesse to a pedophile and more a metaphorical compilation of fears that somebody might have if it's the 80s or the 90s or the 2000s or the 2010s and you're coming to terms with with your sexuality and you're having to face the portrayals of your sexuality that you've grown up with and that you've seen and that you continue to see. Mm Mm-hmm. The heterosexuality angle, too, also kind of sucks. Like, I wish that, like, Lisa was just a really good friend. Right. Like, the will and grace again. Like, uh come on. And, like, it makes me think of, too, like, It Follows. Like, that movie had such strong themes of friendships. And Lisa gave a lot of that energy. Like, you know, you don't have to be romantically in love with somebody to be like, I will wait up with you. We even saw that with Nancy. When Nancy was the one who wanted to stay up all night. With Tina. With Tina, yeah. yeah. Like, and that wasn't queer coded. No. Like, they were like, it was just a level of like loyalty. Like, and, I'm like, your friend. Like, I will stay up with you. And it, it does kind of suck that we lost some of that like friendship dynamic that had already been established in this franchise. And we kind of like put it aside and let love and romance be the end all be all and it doesn't have to be. I think that's a perfect segue because that friendship aspect really does come back strong in the third one. I'm so excited. (laughs) So yes, the next one we'll be covering is A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. And this will mark the return of Nancy (laughs) as a graduate student studying psychology, helping troubled youth that have problems sleeping. Wow, I'm very excited. So far, these two movies haven't been what I thought they would be, but in an interesting and thought-provoking way. There's a lot more here than I was originally intending, but isn't that how it always works out? It always I'm is always how it works the out. one to be like, "Wow, this was great." <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we hope you're enjoying our little Freddy summer so far. We have also been talking about some games we want to play this summer, some like out-of-the-box ideas for episodes. But if you have ideas of what you want us to cover or talk about, definitely email us at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com. 
Or feel free to follow us on Instagram also at The Horrors Podcast. We post updates, episode announcements, things like that. And we'd love to have you. And until next time, we're The Horrors. Bye. Bye. Bye.